Good morning. We're excited to be here. I'm excited to get the opportunity just to speak to you guys this morning and to preach to you. So this is a, a passage. You can go ahead and turn to John 3.16. Um, this is a passage that's super familiar. And so uh, because it's familiar, I'm going to spend a lot of time, even before we get to the passage, I just want to make, make sure we don't miss the importance of such an important passage because we're so familiar with it. So I'm going to start off, the title of it is this, Our Greatest Gift of All. And so I want you to start thinking about, I'm going to give you some lunch table conversation. I'm going to give you some conversation at home. Um, so what was the best or what is the best present you've either received or given? Um, I know as parents, sometimes giving a present is just as fun. So I want you all to think about that. I'm going to mention some. I've asked the staff this question, um, and I'm going to get, give you some of their answers and some of my personal ones. But when you all leave today, um, maybe car ride, maybe over lunch, I want you all to start talking about what is some of the greatest gifts you've given or received. And so part of this, um, for me, I don't know about you all, but I'm just kind of tired of all this not normal. Um, and so Christmas on the horizon kind of feels like a little bit of normalcy that is coming. And so if we're going to have to stay home and we're going to have to do all that, then at least we can stay home with a decorated house and have some really good food that we like that's kind of a, a normalcy for us. So here's some of the things that I have um, for myself and some of the staff. Some of these may be entertaining for you. Some of them may be just super practical, but practical gifts are okay as well. So when I was a kid, I got a Nintendo, the original one. Um, I loved playing Duck Hunt with my dad, and then I believe Mario Brothers was one of them too, but I just loved Duck Hunt. I ended up with a black and white TV that was a hand-me-down to start with, um, even though we had color TVs. Then I moved up to a color TV and then a bigger one. And then, you know, as different video systems come along, now you realize how bad the graphics were. But at the time, I didn't know any better um, because I thought it was the best thing ever. One of my favorite presents as I got older, and I'm not even sure if this was Christmas or when this was, but my grandfather had a 1953 GMC truck that was just sitting in the garage. It had been in there for about 20 years. He had driven it in there, it was still running, had some issues, but, and so I got to kind of restore that with my dad, and he gave it to both of us, and we just like to work on it, and it's nothing special, but it was something I loved working on, and I could actually figure out, I'm not a mechanic, but I could figure out what stuff was and how it worked, because I could see it and I could get to it, and it wasn't run by a computer. Um, Christmas has kind of become a big deal in my family as far as like big gifts and big um, events more than gifts. And so December, make sure I get this right, December 23rd, 2013, I went to the Biltmore house with my then girlfriend um, and asked her to marry me up on the, the top overlooking the Biltmore house, and she said yes, and that, that whole Christmas of celebrating all that together was a big deal. And then a couple of years later, fast forwarding, um, 2017, December 24th. I don't know if y'all have done this, but here in the lobby um, to my right, y'all's left around holidays. Sometimes we have backdrops to take family pictures and things like that. So December 24th, 2017, Kelly and I took our first um, family picture that nobody else really knew about. That was more than just a family of two. But that morning I'd found out that my wife was pregnant and we were expecting my son Jackson, who's two years old now. And so that family picture and just that morning and just that excitement of that season and all the things that come with a new baby on the way with names and ideas. And so that was some of the things that have been really big presents to me. So I would warn you as you have this conversation, be careful. Sometimes people think that their present is the best present ever that they've given you. So be cautious as you phrase some of these things. Um, so Taylor, our other student pastor, he really um, enjoyed skating in high school. And so Taylor got a skate ramp his dad gave him. And I don't know if it was in the backyard or in the driveway or where it was, but that was Taylor's life was skateboarding. And so he got a ramp for 
Ken, I see Ken over there in the corner. Matchbox cars and the track, but also a big wheel. He said he was the, the king of the sidewalk. And so um, that, and by the way, as I'm saying some of these, if y'all have got great ideas for a two-year-old for Christmas, send them my way, because cars and toys, there's only cars and trucks, there's only so many varieties there. Um, so that was Ken's. Angie, this is really practical, but she said really nice pans and knives for cooking. The knives are so sharp, she said she just touched one and it cut her. She even was proud about that and showed me the other day. Alice, this one's a really thoughtful one um, that's super practical. So we know how poor college students are. And so right after college, Alice was at her first um, teaching position and her grandmother for that Christmas gave her this really big box that clanked around and she was trying to figure out what was in it. And it was a box full of glass mason jars that were filled with things like um, green beans and pickles and jams and jellies so, and tomatoes. And so like a sense of home, but also just the effort that was put into that present, just how much love was put into that. For Diane, this is the real practical one, hubcaps. Apparently somebody stole one of them. Um, and so along the way, her husband had you know, really nice rims or something and she was just bothered, but they're missing one hubcap. And so as I would have been, her husband was a little reluctant to give that as a present because you know it seems too practical and you never know if that's okay. And so um, that was for her. For Karen, and I've never heard of this, she had a doll named Velvet and it had a purple velvet dress and blonde hair and there was some knob in the back you could turn and it made the hair go longer or shorter and the dress go longer or shorter. Never heard of that. Um, but a bracelet that she got, but not just the bracelet itself, but that it was from her brother and she had to use a can opener to get into it. And so this bracelet was packaged in a can. And then for her, she played a trick on her two kids, Brandon, um, and I'm blanking on her daughter's name. Megan, there you go. Um, that's what happens, we don't put stuff in your notes. And so she was tired of them messing with them each year and like trying to guess every present. So she mislabeled every single one of them. So all of Brandon's presents had Megan's name on it and all of Megan's had Brandon's. And so just the fun of messing with her kids, I guess. Shannon mentioned that he got a bicycle as a kid. I believe he said it had a banana seat on it. Was that it? Yep. Um, and then when Amity and Shannon were young, newly married, newlyweds and married with you know, more money because they didn't have kids yet. She bought him a nice set of golf clubs that he really likes and we all know that Shannon's a golfer. And then um, his boys, David and Will, bought him a cooler and put Clemson stickers on it. I'm sure the stickers had nothing to do with it, but Clemson, you know, he doesn't like that at all. But so Yeti cooler with Clemson stickers on it, something practical, but also has got his favorite team on it. And this one's kind of cool. Um, Johnny, middle child, Stephanie, and Johnny and Trisha's sister, brother-in-law, sorry, son-in-law, David, um, with Johnny and Trish, took them to lunch one time and gave them some Clemson booties. And the significance of that was they were telling them, hey, you're gonna be grandkids, grandparents for the first time. And so just the way that they did that, Brian got a Martin guitar, he still has it to this day. He showed it to me the other day in his office and then a PlayStation when he was younger. Um, and so these are some presents that are just fun to talk about and a, a gift that people have given us that we think back on fondly. But ultimately today, the greatest gift of all that I'm gonna talk about is salvation in Jesus Christ. And so I'm gonna cover a little bit of Genesis to Revelation. I promise it won't take too long, but we're gonna cover the whole Bible here for a second to give us some context. And so I'm gonna start with this in Genesis 22 with a story that may be familiar with you, for you. It's um, of Abraham and Isaac. And 
just an interesting twist with a good ending. Um, so I'll read, and you can read along on the screen here. After these days, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, who you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey and I with the boy. We will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took his hand and fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Which is a very, you know, interesting, if you're Isaac, you're wanting to ask that question. Like, what's going on here, dad? When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order to bind Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife and slaughtered his son. But an angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide as it is said to this day on that mount of which the Lord shall be provided. And so several questions come out of this passage, um, but I wanna make sure we understand a little bit too about the system. And so um, God created man in his image and there was, they were perfect. There was no problems. There was no sin in the garden of Eden. And then the fall happened. And after the fall and ever since we've had a sin problem where sin separated us from a holy God. And because of that, there was always a requirement for an offering, a sacrifice, someone had, something had to die. There had to be blood for sin. And so in the sacrificial system, they would offer lambs and different animals. You can go back to the Old Testament and read the different things that they would sacrifice, but a lamb was one of the things. And so Abraham's going to sacrifice. He's taking his son along with him. Imagine being a dad, taking your son up there, not with this whole scenario, but imagine being Isaac. And so the three questions I come out of this is, so Abraham and Isaac, who's gonna provide a sacrifice? They're going up in the mountain. Who's gonna provide a sacrifice? How did that lamb, that ram get into the bushes? And where can we find a lamb to be the sacrifice for our sins? And so from this system, and we see that God provided a ram, a lamb in the bushes as an alternate sacrifice instead of Isaac, Abraham's son. If we look forward to Isaiah, sometimes this is referred to as a suffering servant. This passage is a prophecy speaking about how God would send his son, ultimately the Messiah, to die in our place, to suffer in our place. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, 
and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so in this passage, we see a prophecy looking forward to a Messiah that would come, that would, God would lay upon all of our, his sin, our sin onto him, and he would suffer in our place. If we fast forward to Revelation, the end of the Bible, we see this, and this is a, um, just a scene into heaven, and it says, between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and each had a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so I'm not gonna go into all the details of what all that stuff means, but this lamb that was slain, we know to be Jesus Christ. He came to be the sacrifice for our sins and our behalf. And so as we go to John 3.16 and we think about this passage, like the Jewish audience would have walked into this with all this knowledge of the sacrificial system and the need for a sacrifice, the need for a Messiah. And I feel like this passage for us sometimes gets so common because we see it written under people's eyes and sports, we see people holding up signs. It's just something that if nobody knows anything else about the Bible, they probably know about John 3.16. And so as we approach this, I know I was just worried about preaching this as such a common passage. Like how do we get something new out of it? Well, the message has always been the same and we don't have to get anything new out of it that's like, are shaking the gospels are shaking in and of itself and so if you would look with me to john three sixteen, we know this passage well for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life and so bringing everything i just read into this that god gave his son in our place so that we can be saved. And if we look at this passage and break it out a little bit, how do we get eternal life? We believe in the the name of the son who God sent. And so how do we break some of those things apart? So God loved the world so much, he knew that the sin problem existed. He loved the world so much that he sent his own son. Some of y'all are parents in this room. The idea of giving my son up for somebody else, I just can't conceive of that. Would I possibly die for someone? Yes giving my son up for someone else, that blows my mind. So that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. So what is eternal life? Um, Eternal life is eternity. Well, what is eternity? It doesn't end. And so we will live somewhere and our soul will live somewhere in eternity after this earth is gone, after we're gone off this earth. We'll live somewhere in eternity, either in a place called heaven in the presence of God and all the amazing things that we look forward to are a place called hell, a place of separation of God, from God and of not good things and where Satan lives. And so what does it mean to believe? Well, it's not just an intellectual understanding. We can believe lots of things, but we put our faith and our trust in. And so if we really believe in something, our actions should follow. If we just have intellectual assent of, yeah, I agree with that, that's different than believing in something. And so Matt Papa, a songwriter, wrote this, a song kind of along these lines, and this is what he said. If this is true, 
it changes everything. So if we really believe in the gospel, we really believe that we're separated from a holy God by our sin, that God sent his son, who's perfect, to come to the earth to be our sacrifice in our place. If we really believe that and we repent of our sins and put our faith and our trust in him, it will change everything about our life. So believing in him, we get eternal life. But what are some neat things on earth that we also get? Because we kind of think about heaven and yeah, when we die, we're gonna get that and that's amazing. But some of us are young and think that's a long way off, which it may or may not be. But what are the gifts of that here on earth? Well, we get the gift of salvation. We get the gift of the Holy Spirit every day in our life with us to live this confusing, crazy world with us. We get um, the gift of God's word. We get the gift of God's family. We get each other. And so we don't just get heaven, which is awesome and amazing, but we also get amazing gifts here on earth that kind of keep on giving. We get um, members, we get eternal friends. We get friends who will also live forever in heaven. And so this would have also been shocking to a Jewish audience. The idea that everyone had access to the gospel was a foreign concept to them. But everyone, for us that we sometimes before we're believers think, well, I'm too bad. I've done too many bad things. I've done too much bad stuff. If you only knew, God couldn't forgive me of that. But whoever believes in this gospel can be saved because Christ did the work on our behalf. One of my favorite passages is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so some call this the great exchange for our sake. So Christ is him who was um, perfect in every way, had not sinned. For our sake, God made him to be sin. In our place, he died on the cross for our sin. And we get the exchange and we get his perfection and there's a real result of that. We get to go to heaven. We get to spend eternity with God forever because of what Christ did. And so we have to look at John 3.16 in the context of 15 and 17. And so Shannon preached on um, the passage last week and ended in 15. And so um, it was talking about numbers, but it was talking about how Moses could lift up the serpent on a pole. If these people were bitten by a serpent, but bitten by the snakes, but they looked to this bronze serpent on a statue, they could be saved. In the same way, we can look to the cross. We can look to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we can be saved through what he did. And then in the context of verse 17, that's our next verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that he, the world might be saved through him. So God's ultimate reason for sending Christ into the world was not to judge people this time around. It was that the world might be saved through him and so that we would have access to the gospel. And so this context of John 3.16 helps us to see that like, it's not about judgment and it's not about judgmental why Christ came this time. And then if we continue in verse 18 with this thought, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And so we see a contrast here. For those of us that have accepted Christ, for those of us that are Christ followers, we're not judged because Christ already took the punishment for us. But if we or maybe a friend is not a Christian, that person, they've rejected the gospel. They've rejected the truth. They've rejected Christ's offer of salvation. So 
sometimes we as Christians, we have friends that we talk to them about the gospel and they say things like, don't judge me, or we feel like they're gonna think that we're judging them. And this passage helps us to understand like we're not judging anyone and Christ is really not judging them anyway. Um, in this passage, we understand that he gave them the offer of sacrifice. And if they've rejected it, they're judged themselves. They've rejected the gift of eternal life in Christ. And so they're sending themselves to a place, eternity separated from God. It's not that we're judging them. Let's think about it this way. We go to a doctor, sometimes we do that. Um, we go to a doctor and we have a treatable condition, but the doctor comes in and tells us, I've got really bad news. Like you've got a problem that if you don't take this pill, if you don't take this medicine, you're gonna die. But I have good news, super treatable. Here's the, the result or here's the prescription. It doesn't even cost that much. We can, we can fix this prognosis long-term, no problems. Is that doctor judging you by telling you you're sick? As long as there's good news following it, we're pretty excited that the doctor has good news, right? And it's the same way with the gospel. When we share the gospel with people, we're sharing with them that, yeah, they're separated from God by their sin, but hey, there's a solution to the problem. I'm not just coming with a problem. I'm coming with the solution also because Christ has already come up with the solution. Adrian Rogers, an older time pastor, had this story that he would told about the kind of the scenario I described. This man who got some terrible news from the doctor, he was certain to die unless he had a medication which would cost more than a million dollars, which he did not have and could not hope to get. A single vial was all he needed, but it was so far out of reach. He fell to his knees and sobbed, begging the doctor for mercy, begging the doctor to find some way to get him this medicine. When he left, the doctor sought to do just that, cashing in his retirement, working extra hours, selling piles of hard-armed expenses and possessions. For the patient, it was impossible, unattainable. For the doctor, possible but painful. A few weeks later, the doctor called the patient and meet him in the office at a certain time. The patient arrived shortly before the doctor did. But when the physician came through the door, his hair was disheveled, his white shirt was splattered with fresh blood, and a single red vial was in his hand. I have it, I raised the money and I found out there was only one trial left, one vial left in the trial. I know that you would not make it to the next round. So I drove too fast across town and my car was hit, my son died in the accident. But I told the police that I had to get back here or someone else would die too. Exhausted, he handed the vial to the patient and collapsed in the chair. The patient took the vial, looked at it, poured it on the carpet, where it soaked into the fibers, lost forever. I don't want this one. Isn't there something else you can do for me? Doctor, I don't wanna die. You have to help me. So the, the, the truth is that we all, that seems like a ridiculous story, but we all have a condition that will kill us spiritually, and that's our sin. But we also have the answer to that problem. And so um, if we don't take Christ's offer up of salvation that he's offering us, it's like telling the doctor, I realize I'm gonna die, but I wanna die anyway, which doesn't make any sense. That's what we are doing, that's what our friends are doing. If we reject the gospel, we're rejecting the offer and we're not judged, being judged by Christ, we're judging ourselves by rejecting the gospel and his offer of salvation. And so as we continue to, to talk about this judgment in verse 19, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. And so judgment says, the light is coming to the world. Christ is coming to the world, the offer of salvation. Everything, the answer to all of humanity and our problems came into the world. But the people of the world, according to this verse, they liked the darkness and hated the light. Sin's pretty easy to do. Sin's actually natural for us ever since the fall. And so we love to sin. We wouldn't say that normally. That's weird. But we love to sin because it's natural. It's easy. It's usually the fun thing to do. Nobody has to teach us how to sin. My two-year-old has been sinning for a while. And I promise you, I didn't teach him how to sin. Um, Why would any parent do that, right? That's crazy. They just come that way, right? We know that. Um, And so sin... Um, as, and the people of the world and we this, that have not been become believers, we love sin more than we love godliness sometimes. And so that's what this passage is saying. Specifically to non-believers, they love the darkness more than the light. Verse 20, um, people that are not Christ followers, that are not believers, we who have done that in the past too, we, we lived the life of sin and we hated the light. Um, they may not want to come to church. People don't want to be around believers sometimes because we represent God. So think about it this way. Not all people are like this, but some people kind of think this way, like psychologists or counselors. Sometimes people get weirded out by counselors or psychologists. Like if you're around them, like they can read your mind or something. Like they can just see right into what you're thinking. Maybe some kids feel that way about their moms. But You can just read, we're worried about that. Sometimes people who are not believers just feel that way around believers. Like we automatically know what sin they're doing in their life. I don't know what sin people are doing. I'm struggling my own sin. I don't have time to, you know, be concerned with theirs because I'm struggling my own. But like, they just don't want to be around things of the light. They don't want to be around the gospel. They don't want to be around church people sometimes. And so sometimes as we share the gospel, we think like, these people are going to think we're judging them or they're just weirded out by it. They're not weirded out by us. It's it's the gospel that just convicts them. Um, One of the passages that points this out to me the most is Hebrews 4.12. says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. The word of God, for those of us that are believers and for non-believers too, really, but it just has the power of God in our lives. And when the word of God is preached, it just, there's nothing hiding from it. God uses it to convict us. God uses it to show areas of our life that we're not even thinking about. There's no disagreeing with it. And it's kind of like we're just there, Adam and Eve in the garden, naked, And God knows, but yet I've always been confused by that passage. Adam is hiding in the garden behind a leaf. Is anybody thinking God doesn't know that he's there? I mean, God created you. God put you there. Let me just hide behind this leaf and I'll be okay. God won't see me. Is God really asking him in that passage in Genesis? Hey, Adam, where are you? Do you think he doesn't know? But I feel like we hide behind our sin especially before we become a Christian, we hide behind our sin and we're worried about our sin in the dark. We don't want to be around the light because we think it's going to expose us because it will for what it is. My son, he's two, I mentioned. Sometimes we have to do things, um, you know, preventatively to help us out as parents. So 
He had a ceiling fan in his room. He loves ceiling fans. I don't know why, it's just his thing. So he likes for us to turn them on, gets mad when we don't. He had a ceiling fan in his room, it quit working. For some reason in my house, I'm having a problem with ceiling fan. I've had the third one in four years die. So the ceiling fan quit working. We realized we never turned the fan on, so I wanted to replace it. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. So the light still worked, but the ceiling fan part didn't. And actually, no, the ceiling fan part worked, the light didn't, which was the whole reason why we had it in this room for light. So I thought, hey, I can have a parenting win here. So I put him in his crib right there. I take the ceiling fan down. I get a light to put it up and I give him his little plastic tools and I let him pretend like he's helping me. And so, and I tell him that this is his light and this is Jackson's light and he likes to refer to himself in the third person. And so now Jackson says things like Jacker's light, which I intentionally did so he wouldn't be sad about the fan. So here's what I'm trying to get to. My son, when he wants to sleep, if we go in there and turn the light on, he says, no like it, turn off Jackson Jacker's light. And he says that over and over until we listen to him because he wants to sleep. He doesn't want the light. Now, when he wants to play, he wants the light on. But when he wants to sleep, he wants the darkness. That's natural. In the same way spiritually, when we want to sleep spiritually, when we want to stay spiritually dead, when we don't want to hear the things of God, we don't want the light around us. And that's natural for people that are not believers to not want to be around things of God. When we're struggling with sin, we don't really want to be around things of God sometimes, and we have to fight that temptation. And so as we look through this passage and we talk about light and darkness and Christ is the light and his word is the light in our life, I just thought about that and Jackson. And we as believers, verse 21, as we continue on, are different than that. But whoever does whatever is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so for those of us that are believers in the room, we wanna be around other Christians. We wanna be around our eternal family. We wanna be around the things of God. We wanna sing about the things of God. We wanna hear God's word proclaimed. We get excited when Pastor Jeff comes and preaches, which by the way, he'll be in the pulpit next Sunday. So um, we get excited to hear God's word because we love the light, because the light is who we are. We're children of the light. And so we come to the light. We're, try to honor God and we come to the light and we even want to be around people to help us because some of us, I'll speak for myself, have blind spots in our life. Kind of like in the car, maybe over here or over here um, where you can't see and you kind of need all the new technology to flash and tell you there's somebody in your blind spot. In the same way, we need other believers in our life to be used by God, to shine God's truth, God's light and our light. So that those areas of darkness that still remain, even though we're believers, they are obvious. And so I wanna ask a question, I'm gonna pray for us in a second and kind of make some things personal, but have you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ? This is the first thing and the most important thing before I get into anything else about making it personal. Because John 3.16 is a verse that we've heard so many times. For those of us that have grown up in church, I've been in church all my life, we hear verses like this. We hear the gospel so much. We're like, oh yeah, when I was five, I took care of that. And like, we just don't realize that we had an intellectual understanding, but we didn't believe it in our heart. We knew the gospel, but we didn't believe it in our heart and it hasn't changed everything. And so I would just ask you today, as you think this through, as you think about what the greatest gift of all is in your life and salvation, has that salvation changed your life? So I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna have some points to kind of think through things to make things personal. Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you for the opportunity of the gospel. We thank you this common passage is still the power of God for salvation to those who believe. We didn't earn it, we can't earn it. Just as we don't, as kids buy our presents on Christmas day, you bought a present and our job is to accept it. You bought our salvation in the work of Christ on the cross. So God, we can't earn a salvation we never had anything to do with, Lord. And we can't lose a salvation that we didn't earn. So God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for that you love the world so much that you sent your son to save us from our sin, to solve our problem. It's in your name we pray, amen.